everybody. Welcome back to the show. Hope you're all enjoying a great summer wherever you are. Uh, thanks once again for joining me. Today, I'm looking at a very important question that isn't being uh, dealt with uh, in a serious way in the mainstream media space. Whatever you may think of COVID-19 restrictions, such as mask mandates, uh, vaccine mandates, uh, and lockdowns in particular, uh, the defenders of these public health measures claimed that they were a necessary tool to combat the pandemic. But those defenders often neglect, whether willfully or not, the costly and damaging negative effects these public health measures had on us. And those negative effects, if they're large enough, could even outweigh the benefits. The point is, we won't know until we look at both sides of the ledger and not pretend that lockdowns had only a good side to them. This is to say nothing of the fact that several of these policies themselves had a dubious uh, rationale at best in some cases. For example, as many of you know, on August 2nd, I broke a big story for common sense um, that the federal mandate, vaccine mandate for travel, had no compelling scientific rationale. And whatever scientific rationale there was, how is it that it applied to Canadians and everybody else, except not to unvaccinated Ukrainians arriving in Canada after the war? I understand why Canada might want to be compassionate towards those fleeing a war zone, uh, but it's hard to believe that the virus understood this difference. And then again, where was the compassion to the millions of Canadians who couldn't travel to meet their loved ones and were essentially prisoners uh, as soon as the federal vaccine mandates came into effect? Let's also remind ourselves that these mandates haven't been trashed. Uh, they've only been suspended and can be brought back in at the drop of a hat. Today's guest is ideally situated to talk about the harmful effects of COVID-19 vaccine policies that both federal and provincial governments are happy to sweep under the rug. Kevin Bardosh is an applied medical anthropologist and implementation scientist focused on using social science and community engagement to improve public health delivery and policy. He's affiliate assistant professor at the University of Washington. He was a lead author in an academic paper in British medical journal, Global Health. It's a peer-reviewed scientific journal, and the study is titled The Unintended Consequences of COVID-19 Vaccine Policy, Why Mandates, Passports, and Restrictions May Cause More Harm Than Good. The title of the paper pretty much gives us a sense of where Kevin and co-authors come down on the issue. So without any further delay, let's get started. All right. So, um, Kevin, welcome to the show. Um, I was hoping that we could chat about this very important paper that uh, you and your co-authors published in the British Medical Journal, Global Health. Um, you argue in the paper that uh, contrary to the policy boosters who always point to the upsides of vaccine mandates, um, passports, lockdowns, uh, etc., you point to what you call the, quote, counterproductive and damaging effects on public health of COVID-19 vaccine policies, in particular, which you say not only infringe on civil liberties, but can result in societal polarization and worsen mistrust in government, among other things. Um, could you tell me what led you and your co-authors to do this research in the first place? Did you see the need to have um, a corrective uh, to the official narrative that focuses almost exclusively on the upsides of COVID-19 policies? And I would argue that it pays short shrift to its harmful effects. 
Absolutely. I think there are lots of different motivations and I can't speak for all of my co-authors. But um, from my side, uh, on the one hand, it was uh, just seeing a lack of debate about this issue. And when I say that, I mean, if you think back to pre-pandemic 2019, if you were to gather a bunch of global health experts together and give them a scenario, which was what took place in 2020 and 2021, most of them would probably not advise the mandates and the, ma and the lockdown approaches that we ended up taking because they were not standard, seen as standard acceptable policy response. Um, once we went down that road of locking down with China, Italy, and the US, it became very difficult for political leaders to step back and say, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to do something different. Um, you had policy lock-in around lockdowns. Um, so on the one hand, we wanted we just saw a lack of critical debate. Um, people were also, uh, they might have had skeptical views, but they felt unable to come forward and express those because of reputational damage, et cetera. So mm -hmm. um, we felt like a responsibility to articulate that um, in a scholarly way and in, in a way that um, would challenge people and offer a space to critically evaluate these, these mandates and, and the sort of policy culture around them. Um, also, secondly, uh, just in my own social network, seeing people um, kind of freaking out in different ways, experiencing the mandates in, 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 in polar opposite ways. So people saying, I'm not going to go around unvaccinated people. You're not welcome to come to my Christmas party, even though I'm a Christian, for example. Um, and then other people ending up in psych wards because they were so negatively impacted by the this sort of uh, inspection of the motivation of what was taking place, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I reticent to use the word conspiracy theories there, um, but alternative power theories around why uh, governments would mandate a product like that at that time, uh, and in that particular way, uh, given concerns um, that predate the pandemic about the direction of uh, of government um, and this sort of increase of bureaucratic. Um, mm -hmm sort of yeah, culture around uh, around health and around um, just general service delivery. So um, yeah, I've, I've seen it in my own social network, the negative impacts. And I think we've also seen it in Canada. And the irony is this paper was written before the Freedom Convoy uh, started. So mm -hmm. clearly we were feeling the social pulse of the time in Canada, but then also elsewhere, as you know, these, these protests were global in scope. Yeah. Um, and they were covered in a very specific framing in the media, which I disagree with, um, and I think you do as well. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So just yeah, trying to add nuance, you know, I, I think one thing here is in this perpetual cycle of the death, what I call the death of nuance. So we we're hoping to add to that debate. Um, and I think we've we've succeeded in, in some degree. I think so, because you, you marshal a lot of uh, data and facts and you point to, uh, you know, you cite lots of studies uh, to, to, you know, to support uh, the, the, you know, your, your study. Um, and, you know, I just, I'm, I'm always intrigued, you know, how is it that everybody just was, you know, there was so little dissent, is especially from the media, you know, or from our, um, and anybody who dissented, I think any scientist, a doctor, epidemiologist who said, hey, wait a minute, this is not making any sense. I don't, I think we're going in, in the wrong direction here when it comes to school closures, when it comes to things like vaccine mandates. Uh, and anybody who said that was, uh, you know, shouted out of the room, was seen as a, was uh, smeared and called a conspiracy theorist. 
uh, not a real doctor. Uh, and, and, and it was incredibly damaging, I think, and in, in a sense, uh, created this culture of fear uh, that uh, a lot of us, you know, and I've explained this in a recent National Post column, um, you know, I consider myself to be fairly rational minded and, you know, I'm not someone who's prone to hysteria and panic. But I have to say that, you know, at some level, some of that fear even got to me. And, uh, and you know, I, I remember searching um, for anything at that time. You know, is there anybody who says, who's, who's pointing to uh, the opposite and saying, you know, these, these uh, intuitively I knew that these policies were very damaging. It made no sense to me why you would cordon off park benches. Um, you know, it just, or where the, you know, the top doctor in my city of Ottawa uh, said that no more than 20 people could be on a hiking trail in the middle of winter. Um, so, and we were told outdoors is one of the safest places you can be. Uh, and, but, but, uh, but outdoors also became an issue. You couldn't be outdoors. So essentially, you know, our movements were being restricted and, uh, and, you know, and I'm, I'm very grateful for, you know, your contribution, you and your co-authors for, um, for, um, you know, for coming up with this because, you know, now I hopefully more people are starting to realize the damaging effects of these uh, policies and starting to um, question because, you know, we are not quite done. There's no guarantee that these policies are not going to return, right? I mean, we've, we, at least here in Canada with the vaccine mandates, even though they've been, uh, you know, they've been suspended for now, they could be brought back at the drop of a hat. And so there's no guarantee. And I hope that more, you know, more people look at the study and look at the harmful effects uh, these policies have had on us. Um, and, and, you know, whether it was all worth it, in, worth it in the end. Do you think that these policies were worth it in the end? So it's really difficult to make general statements, obviously, right? Like yeah. you know, we're dealing with uh, my own work crosses lots of different countries, yeah. different social groups, et cetera. So it, it's, I'm somewhat reticent to make general claims, but I would say mm -hmm. on the whole, I think that we yeah. took a wrong approach here. And yeah. just to focus on the fear as, as an example, right? Yeah. Fear is incredibly stressful. It, it has all sorts of psychosocial and physiological effects. And mm -hmm. when you wrap up fear for so long, which the media did, I mean, looking just at the, the, the journalistic stories, there was a study yeah. looking at journalism in the U.S. that found like 90 plus percent of media coverage was negative versus European mm -hmm. countries where it was like 40 or 50 percent. So just the mm -hmm. tone of, of media has a huge effect on the national psyche. Um, I do think that a lot of the policies that we implemented will be found and are currently seen, uh, should be seen as causing more societal harm than benefit. School closures yeah. are one of them. Like you said, outdoor uh, mandates, right? Um, in, in, in Ontario, from April to June of 2021, you had stay-at-home orders, right? Which were yeah, effectively yeah. limiting the ability mm -hmm. to go outside and gather. Mm -hmm. And that was over a year into the pandemic. And I actually just finished a, a scoping review of um, the evidence on mental health in Canada for the pandemic. And it's really quite striking. I mean, there is no mm -hmm. study that's saying, oh yeah, people are okay. All of the studies unanimously say um, mental health of people suffered drastically, anxiety, depression, psychiatric conditions, um, and they also increased over time. So by the time you get into 2021, they're worse mm -hmm. than when they were uh, in May of 2020. Right. So was it reasonable to be uh, locking people down in, when you were already uh, vaccinating the most vulnerable population well, group? That, it's very puzzling because, I mean, this is a question that I wanted to ask you. Uh, um, and I asked this to everybody, uh, any expert. Why is it that we panicked 
so much in the other, we we panicked so much after after vaccination was widespread uh and the variants were becoming milder and milder what what explains that panic uh, uh we were I, yeah no that's so that's a fascinating question that i have yeah. you know scrawly notes everywhere about different thoughts yeah and i think my conclusion would be on the one hand when you start with a fear based message it's really hard mm-hmm. to backtrack right mm-hmm. i mean we we heard very little empowering messages we also yeah, had yeah. what i call a covidization of the okay. world everything was seen through the prism of mm-hmm. covid cases covid deaths fear of covid mm-hmm. the new social norms around social distancing mm-hmm. and physical distancing or whatever you mm-hmm. want to call it and we became hyper obsessed with that and th- the best sort of an analog that I like to draw on um, is the 9-11 attacks. And I happened Mm -hmm. to have moved from Montreal to Boston a few months right before Mm 9-11. And so I witnessed that as a a Canadian in a foreign country. And I was astounded at how the Americans, just the the, the national psyche became completely overwhelmed with this vision Mm -hmm. of we need need retaliation. And the narrative was very narrow. In fact, um, Howard Zinn, the famous uh, leftist progressive historian, came to my high school um, a few weeks after. And his his message was questioning the government's response to this is not anti-American. Right. That, that was that was the, the flavor. And if you remember, New York Times, everyone was saying, you know, yeah. they were they were doing the dr- the drum beat to mm. war. war and, yeah. and people like Chris Hedges were mm-hmm. completely uh, marginalized if, for, for their skepticism about the war. And it took many years for yeah. the, for the national conversation to admit, hey, this is this is not this was a this is a wrong decision. We had just more um, just war theory that emerged out of the ethics departments, similar mm-hmm. to the ethical discussion around mandates. I, w- I, I think there's parallels between that. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And then sort of um, lastly, the, the great iron or the tragic irony is that um, the Afghan pullout debacle was occurring as the pandemic was still um, still uh, rolling on. Uh, yeah, um, we saw uh, this sort of very stark reminder of the of the power of empire, or the being, or the weakness of empire being shown mm-hmm. in the frivolity of it. As we're yeah. still arguing about masking five year olds in New York City, let's say. Yeah, yeah. And I just think there's a lot of parallels there. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And so the the second concept is this notion of safetism, with which the the moral psychologist Jonathan Hyde mm-hmm. has talked a lot about, which has been in the last twenty years as we've become a culture of affluence. We, we, we put safety as the sort of highest moral value of virtue mm-hmm. in and of itself. So everything's about making sure everyone is safe. Um, and I think what we've seen here is that there is a risk to that perpetual obsession with safety um, and, and a, a miscalculation of risk also. So like for myself, um, I, I was very alarmed at what was going on in China very early on. Uh, mm-hmm. I knew about this, you know, as the first sort of whispers were occurring. My kids were masked in January. Um, mm-hmm. We were, you know, disinfecting uh, our grocery groceries in January mm-hmm. before anybody was doing anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as I learned about the age distribution and thinking, okay, yeah. we're healthy people, Mm-hmm. Our risk profile completely dropped off, sort of like yeah. May 2020. And also, yeah. uh, anyhow, I won't get into all the nuances of our family situation. But yeah, and you know, uh, I think that that was an appropriate response for my particular age group and the way that I interact with people. Yeah. In so, yeah, yeah. So there was this uh, one size fits all approach to everybody, right? So we knew right from the get go that 
um, that the most vulnerable had to be protected. So people in long-term care homes, retirement homes, the elderly, those who are immunocompromised. But why would, say, you know, you know, a teenager, someone in their 20s or the 30s or even 40s for that matter, very healthy, um, you know, why is it that we were also subject to the same measures? Uh, and that is something that I didn't understand as well, you know, very early on. And and as you say, you know, I, I made my own risk assessment. You know, I possibly had COVID very early on back in January uh, 2020. Um, and uh, and then I was triple vaccinated and, and then I got Omicron. And then I still, th- you know, was worried that I was unmasked in a crowded space. And I was thinking to myself, well, where's the science here? The science says that I have all of these antibodies. Uh, and what, what am I so afraid of? And it just made no sense. And at that point, I think, it, you know, everybody comes to this decision in their, you know, at their own pace. And for me, it took, it took, it took a while that I had ups and downs, but I came to the same conclusion. That's it. I'm done uh, being fearful and I just want to move on with my life and uh, whatever happens, happens, you know, and I'm, you know, I, I accept that responsibility, but so far so good uh, is all I can say. But, um, but go, yeah, but going back to your paper, Kevin, so, you know, in, in your paper, you break down the potential unintended uh, harmful consequences of COVID-19 policies um, into four categories, uh, which you describe as one, behavioral psychology, uh, political and legal effects, socioeconomics, and integrity of science and public health. Um, w- would you like to tell me how you narrowed down your analysis to these four areas um, and why you believe these are key to understanding the harmful effects of mandates or other public health measures? Yeah, I mean, as a as a applied medical anthropologist, we use you know uh, in thematic analysis. We we try to make sense mm-hmm. of the complexity of social life by grouping things into major themes. So that's effectively what we did here, it, just looking at the literature. So doing a literature review and then reading right. basically as much as we could about about this particular topic in different countries. And then also, I think Twitter was also a fabulous resource just to understand people's responses and their opinions about about mm-hmm. this particular topic. Um, So, and it's pretty standard also, if you think about the effects of a policy intervention, these are pretty standard areas that you would talk about. Um, So that's, that's how we determine the the structure of it. Um, And uh, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, yeah. So, um, and, and, you know, and your paper also has these um, incredible quotes from major world leaders, including our own Justin Trudeau. Uh, and I and I urge everybody to take a look at this table, uh, table two of the paper. Uh, these are major world leaders uh, who are essentially scapegoating and stigmatizing their own people uh, who happen to be unvaccinated. Uh, Macron, for example, in France says he wanted to piss off the small minority of the unvaccinated even more than before. And uh, went so far as to claim that someone irresponsible in his opinion is not even a citizen. And of course, we know what uh, our Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, uh, when he uh, when he infamously sa- said uh, he tarred all of the unvaccinated as a group of misogynists and racists, uh, asking, "Do we uh, tolerate these people?" Um, I mean, this 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 feels like it's right out of the 1930s. Um, and uh, so, thank you for assembling these incredibly disturbing quotes in one place. Uh, but why do you think that these world leaders made these outrageous claims? 
uh, to marginalize and stigmatize their own uh, citizens. Uh, do you think they genuinely believe this or was this a political tactic uh, to perhaps increase their power and authority or, you know, or in, in, or in this case, in Canada, uh, in Canada's case, serve as a wedge issue, um, as I recently argued in the case of uh, Trudeau's uh, uh, federal uh, vaccine mandate for travel, which was conveniently announced um, two days before uh, last fall's election? Yeah, it was great questions. So on the one hand, it depends on what the information that they had available at the time was, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if you, see, if, you, if you thought that the vaccine would actually end the pandemic, which is what we were told, right? If you go back to mid-2021, that was the rhetoric. Mm-hmm. This is 97% mm-hmm. effective, and we are going to end the pandemic uh, if everyone gets vaccinated. Um, it's clearly was, was not true. It was it was it was obvious at the time. If you were somebody who specialized in vaccinations and, and global health, you could understand that this was going to be and probably a non-durable vaccine. There was data out of Israel and the UK in you know early to mid 2021 showing that the vaccines were not durable in the sense that they would stop transmission completely, um, etc. So it depends on what their scientific advice was. Um, I would also say that there's just this sort of very narrow um, uh, view of vaccination as a totem, as something that's morally good and can't be questioned. It's sort of a, mm-hmm. a standard uh, notion that vaccines are always safe, no matter what, and everyone should get vaccinated. What's your problem? Why aren't you vaccinated? So it's seen as it's almost like intelligence test. Um, and I would argue that that's, com- that's also a fallacious concept. Um, it erodes people's individual uh, decision-making agency. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, one astounding thing about all of this is the sort of complete denial of prior infection. And in fact, if you go back and you, there were papers pre-vaccine talking about the ethics of immunity passports. So if somebody had COVID, should they be given freedoms that the rest of us don't have because they have this prior infection sort of immunity? Uh, and that was seen as, as, as a bad idea because it would promote people to go and get infected. So I think that that was also part of this logic was, well, if we allow prior infection to be given equal status, people who don't want to get vaccinated are all going to go get infected at these COVID parties. Um, So you can see, again, this sort of um, uh, sort of parental or or very kind of condescending perspective of the of our of our government on citizens like you can't make decisions for yourself. So we're going to tell you what you need to do. Very very paternalistic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, um, and and in exactly, but in a sense, what has ended up happening now with the with with the current approach is that with vaccination, uh, essentially all of these countries are like, yeah, I mean, I think at this point, you might as well get infected, um, and uh, and they have already. Yeah, and and so you know exactly. And why do you think that they uh, we, they 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 downplayed um, something as old as time itself, which is natural immunity? Why is it that they um, um, you know doubled down on vaccination in such a big way and just completely ignored the fact that you could recover from? COVID-19 and you had these antibodies and now you have studies coming out saying that these antibodies are in some way, in, in, in some cases, just as good as getting vaccinated. Um, and, and if you're vaccinated and recovered, that's even better, perhaps. I, I, I don't know. But the point is that there, there's a slow recognition happening right now um, that natural immunity does play a role. But why did we just initially just ignore it? What do you think happened there? So I think there's the scientific data about the vaccine. And you know, yeah. we need to be give people some the benefit of the doubt or be a little bit 
um, not compassionate, but understanding in the sense that this was a very stressful emergency. A lot of people died from COVID. A lot mm. of people suffered because of the consequences and the restrictions. And I do think I, I don't mm. want to just create this po increased polarization of the conversation. Yeah. Um, but there's also an, a need to take stock of what happened so that it doesn't happen again. If you go and read Bill Gates's recent book on pandemics, he basically lays out this plan that if there's another respiratory pandemic or whatever, we need to lock down for six months while the pharmaceutical companies and the government creates a vaccine Amazing. and then we open up again. So yeah. this idea, uh, th this is going to be now in the rule book going mm -hmm. forward. And that's mm -hmm. that really needs to be questioned, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what, you know, what data were they looking at? Um, second of all would be... Um, just the 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 um, oh, I just lost my train of thought for the second. Oh right, this increase of bureaucratization. So a vaccine is something that you can standardize in the sense of okay, how many people are vaccinated? 60, 70 percent, blah blah blah. You can you can easily sort of monitor it. You can easily track it. So mm -hmm. I think that that's one of the things. Whereas prior infection, it's almost like a, a natural thing. Um, it's unruly. Uh, how do we know if somebody was really infected at what time? What antibody level do they have? There was all this conversation about about this. So I would say that on the one hand, it reflects this bureaucratic culture in government. Um, on the on the third this third kind of thing, and you know, to be controversial here, but this is an obvious thing. The pharmaceutical industry made a huge amount of money. Mm -hmm. Hundred billion dollars. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is the same pharmaceutical industry that pre-pandemic, a, a lot of people who were very forceful about the mandates would be skeptical, saying, "Look exactly. at the crisis. Look at mental health uh, yep. you know, conditions where we just drug everyone up with Prozac." Mm -hmm. Oh, the ph pharmaceutical industry, you know, is 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 manipulating the trial data. And yet, when yep. suddenly when a pandemic happens, no, no, you can't question the pharmaceutical industry. And yet the revolving door between government and pharmaceutical industry is actually increasing with time. It's not decreasing. Uh, and, you know, for example, the Freedom of Information Act that this NGO in the U.S. Um, you know, initiated, Pfizer and the FDA tried to stop it um, and, and tried to uh, basically argue that it would take them 75 years to release all of the internal communications between Pfizer and the FDA. So take off yeah. your preconceptions about the pandemic and just put on that hat for a second. I think that that needs to be looked at a lot more carefully. Um, yeah. You know, this whole notion of 97% of effective at transmission, it seems like we were also very, very hopeful. People were hoping that this would stop. You know, it would be this sort of, okay, now we can go back to normal, everyone's vaccinated. So there was this massive sort of social hope um, that unfortunately didn't quite pan out in the way that, that it did. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, so that that was, uh, you know, that leads to my next question perfectly, which is, you know, one of the points you make in the paper, uh, which I thought was very striking and salient was, you know, the lack of transparency about vac the vaccines themselves. Uh, for example, pharmaceutical companies and governments, you know, don't release, haven't released all of the relevant data. Um, it fosters suspicions and fuels conspiracy theories, uh, which could be you know, easily diffused if the data were simply made public, I think. Uh, and, you know, forgive me for being cynical here, but I feel like one obvious reason for not releasing such data is that it doesn't support the idea that the vaccines were the greatest thing since sliced bread. 
And um, and as we've seen, governments around the world, um, you know, including Canada, you, they keep watering down the claims. And this is a, a point that you make in the paper as well. Originally, we were told getting double jab would be the route to return to normalcy. Then we were told getting a booster would reduce the seriousness of symptoms. And, um, and even though vaccination was supposed to prevent you from getting infected. Now we're told it's to help our collapsing healthcare system, which was already collapsing even before the pandemic. Right. Um, and uh, and you Especially in, old, in, in elderly homes. Right? Exactly, exactly. These are not new issues. Uh, but what do you what do you make of this constantly shifting goalposts and what, you know and 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 what and how does it affect the future uh, of public health policy, especially in Canada? Will you know people trust the government uh, going forward if they say you must do X Y Z in the interest of public health and your own public safety uh, when the promises of these mandates of these COVID nineteen restrictions have run hollow uh, on so many occasions? Yeah. So, so two things. One is in the paper, we make the argument that when you mandate a vaccine, you should mm-hmm. be held to a higher standard of transparency uh, right. than if you don't mandate it. So if, you know, the, 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 the vaccine efficacy is not as effective over time, if you didn't mandate it, you're going to maintain population trust more than if you mandate a vaccine. And it doesn't turn out quite in the way that you were saying it, which is what, what kind of is taking place or has taken place here. Mm-hmm. Number two is it really de- depends on whether the population, the citizens of a country really care, right? Like how many Canadians still think that lockdowns were a wonderful intervention that was necessary? How many of them think that vaccine mandates were absolutely necessary and, and think that, you know, um, people who were protesting against them were sort of far right Trump conspirators that are related to QAnon? I, the data, you know, is there's not a lot of data out there. Mm-hmm. To suggest. I think that it's it's certainly shifted over time. There's a lot less people that are supportive of that as they become infected themselves and sort of experience different things in their own social networks. Um, so, but I, I think that we are going to see a mass, we already have seen a massive backlash against trust in public health and in government mm-hmm. because of the way that this has been handled. Um, and for example, uh, uh, um, there is no, to my knowledge, there is no cost benefit of analysis of boosters for people under 40 from the US with Omicron or even Delta going forward. So the, the US CDC and, and FDA and whatnot are advocating for you know, 20, 10 year olds, 20 year olds, 30 year olds, 39 year olds to get boosted, but they don't actually have like an age-based harm benefit uh, mm-hmm. analysis uh, for that age group. And so um, another paper that we have hopefully coming out soon, um, we offer the first risk benefit analysis in that group Okay. I won't get into the, the results, but then we make we pivot and we make five ethical arguments against booster mandates. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, some of those uh, include like if you don't have a clear benefit, you shouldn't mandate a vaccine. Right. So like there's a trustworthiness issue there. You're damaging trust in regulators and in public health authorities if it's not clear. Yeah. Um, second of all, if you don't have a vaccine injury compensation program that is functional, and that's the case in the U.S. and I would say even in Canada, these people, you know, on rare, rare cases, sure, I'll use the word rare, um, you know, people have been injured from the vaccine. We acknowledge that in, in yeah. public health, that all vaccines have some side effects. And those people have not been compensated. And they've actually had horrible experiences, many of them, through the bureaucratic Byzantine maze of seeking mm-hmm. compensation. So if you don't have a functioning compensation thing, you're asking people to, part- mandating people to participate in something, and you're not providing compensation, that's unethical. Um, and then we look at also for for under 40, 
you know, a lot of schools and universities are mandating boosters. So individuals who have prior infection, maybe they're concerned about myocarditis, whatever they have, you know, humans are complicated. We have all sorts of reasons why we do mm -hmm. something and don't do it. Um, you're effectively taking away their ability to go to school, to keep a job, etc. And, um, you know, this late in the game, it doesn't really make sense when so many people have already been infected. Um, it's, yeah, it, it's, it's quite surprising to me that booster mandates are still on the table at this point. Yeah, but do you see a shift happening at all anywhere, um, um, whether it's in the U.S. or Canada, a shift uh, from our public health officials, um, a recognition that, you know, public trust has been lost to some extent, to a large extent, and that, hey, you know, maybe we need to step back a little bit and rethink this. Uh, and not have this top-down uh, technocratic approach to public health. And uh, do, you, do you see that happening at all? I mean, absolutely, it's happening. It's been happening yeah. for, for over a year now, I think, when people felt like they could voice dissent and not yeah. be classified as deviants that were, you know, killing grandma or whatnot. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know where we go from here. It's hard yeah. for me to get a sense of the pulse of my colleagues that are outside of the skeptical frame that I that I yeah. uh, am very much in. Mm -hmm. um, and I am I am concerned. Um, and I think as a as a as a social scientist, I'm interested to stay close to what what research data is showing. And yeah. um, you know, I am open minded. I'm not dogmatic or I'm not an ideologue here. Um, but there's going to need to be a pivot. And to go back to the 9-11 example, right? Yeah. How long mm -hmm. did that take for the for the foreign policy establishment in the United States to shift their narrative mm -hmm. around mm -hmm. foreign interventions in Afghanistan, uh, Iraq, North yeah. Africa, et cetera? I mean, it took decades. And even now we're still dealing with uh, the, the debt from those decisions yeah. and the loss, of, the loss of government trust. I mean, you know, uh, 9-11 and, and the wars in the Middle East were predicated on phony information, phony intelligence in many, you know, and, and they had devastating consequences for people's lives. Yeah. Um, so, again, I think that there, this is going to be a process. And I think I see it as as part of my role is to just push people and say, hey, look, this was was this really a good decision? Was this really the way that we want to do things and look at the consequences? Yeah. Do you do you think that uh, do you do you envision um, at, at some point some of these measures coming back, um, maybe sometime in the fall? Do you think that's going to happen, or we are, or do you think that we're basically done with lockdowns and mandates? I don't. I don't know. I mean, COVID is you know it's not a nice virus. It can be quite um, devastating mm -hmm. for people, mm -hmm. and it's we're getting it. We're going to be getting it. You know, going mm -hmm. forward into the future, and so mm -hmm. I am. I, I, I'm not an expert in the long COVID literature. I'm, I mean, I am concerned about it. Um, yeah. um, and it's, yeah, it's going to be a difficult balance um, of what we do going forward. And I don't have any, yeah. I haven't spent uh, the time to sort of put my head together and really think about what policies should be going, should, we should implement going forward. But it does seem like most um, school districts are yeah. um, you know uh, they're advocating against mass mandates against okay. closures even in Massachusetts recently mm -hmm. which was you know had very um, mm -hmm. maximalist approaches for a while mm -hmm. the CDC's new guidelines are certainly um, a step in the right direction um, but then we're going to face a situation where if we just have nothing we have no control right mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Th then we need to sort of flip the narrative and say okay how can we support reductions of COVID mortality and morbidity 
Yeah. Um, right. We don't want to just allow people to sort of suffer and, and die from from a virus if we can prevent it. Mm -hmm. um, so I think we're going to have to have a, a rethink. And obviously, ventilation plays a good role there. Um, okay. paid, paid sick leave. A great idea. Um, yeah. Early treatment with, you know, uh, anti-inflammatories, et cetera. Um, and, and hope. Right. That's mm -hmm. one of the most perplexing things about this whole pandemic is we were yeah. told, shut yourself in your house. Um, don't go and gather with people. And if you get sick, stay home, don't do anything until you can't breathe and then go to the emergency room. Mm -hmm. I mean, what kind of health policy is that? <laughs> I mean, even so I, I say, I say that sometimes I think like with the whole ivermectin debate, even yeah. if ivermectin is t completely not effective, there's still a placebo effect involved. And yeah. right. Uh, <laughs> of doctors saying, <laughs> no, we've got something that can help you. So, I mean, yeah. Yeah, no, it's been, I think I, I will look back on this time. I mean, I think we're already kind of doing that, you know, just how ridiculous some of these discussions were uh, and how many of us went along with it, um, you know, and, and but at least I think some of us are waking up and that's a good sign. Uh, but uh, but hey, uh, Kevin, uh, you know, that brings us uh, to the end of this uh, discussion. But, uh, you know, it was great having you on the show. Um, you know, of course, we're just scratching the surface here. Um, so I hope you'll be back on the show again soon, but hopefully not to discuss the next set of mandates <laughs> that come 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 down from the government. So I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me and also to you, to you and your colleagues for, uh, I think, uh, you know, writing, you know, coming up with the study, which is a very important uh, um, a corrective to the official narrative that uh, lockdowns were uh, amazing for all of us and they did all of these great things. So thanks for being on the show, Kevin. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Okay, thank you.